So there are certain things in our lives, I'm sure in your life, certainly in mine, there are memories that are burnt into our minds. There are things you just can't not remember. And for me, it was a specific moment during my wedding ceremony. So if you remember back, if you're married, um, usually the wedding day is a blur. But there's one moment that I will always remember. So I was up front, and all the other groomsmen, bridesmaids are there. And we are in Snydow Chapel on the campus of Lynchburg College. And I hear these big, creaky wooden doors open in the back. And then my wife, my bride-to-be, appears adorned in her wedding dress, in the diamond earrings, and the diamond necklace that I gave her before our wedding day. You know, hair is done, makeup, everything. And I will always remember the, the power of that moment and her beauty just hitting me like a ton of bricks. And I was that groom that like, I almost lost it, you know, like, <laughs> like just, just weeping on the front. And I, I remember like I, the tears were welling up and I, and I go, all right, this is not the moment to lose it. So I just like tilt my head back and try to get those tears <laughs> to roll back in my head. I will always remember that. And here's a picture of Deborah in her uh, wedding dress. Um, just, uh, you know, right. I mean, just beautiful on her wedding day. You know, my wife was supposed to be here last service and she knew I was going to mess with her. And I couldn't find her in the, in the congregation. And uh, she texts me. She goes, oh, I forgot. I had a life group during the 930 service online and I can't make the 11 because we live too far away. So I'll watch online. So baby, if you're watching, I know you're trick. You try to get out of it. <laughs> but anyone with eyes can see how beautiful she is. But her wedding dress, the diamonds, the shoes, it did not make her any more beautiful. Rather, it accentuated the beauty already present in my wife, right? The, the shoes and the dress and the makeup and everything else. It didn't change the, the, the shape of her face, the shape of her body. It didn't change her beauty. Rather, it illustrated, it accentuated, it magnified what was already there. You know, there are things that can be done to highlight the beauty around us, the beauty in a culture, the beauty in a landscape. And as we're going to talk about today, there are things we can do to adorn the beauty of the gospel. See, how we live our lives, what the Bible says, it can function as an adornment for the message of the gospel. And one of the primary ways that we adorn the gospel is when we live lives of self-control. So that's the topic we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about self-control from Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And this is the big idea. Self-control adorns the gospel. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, we're going to look at the, uh, a pretty good-sized chunk. It'd be great if you could go there to Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to look at verse 1 all the way to verse 10. 
We are in a series called We the Church, talking about what it means to be the church. And in this passage, Titus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, we see Paul giving instructions to the church that Titus was over. It was on the island of Crete. And he's giving us instructions in how to live. So Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, there's that word, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So here the Apostle Paul is explaining the link between doctrine and ethics, or the link between our beliefs and our actions. You see, the Apostle Paul frames up all of his practical instructions in verses 2 through 9. He frames them up with verse 1 and verse 10. These are the context, the framework with which we are to see verses 2 through 9. Look with me at verse 1. Scripture says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the starting place. This is the basis for any of the following instructions. See, the Apostle Paul is not providing generally good ideas, some life hacks for the Christians on the island of Crete. Rather, Paul says that based on our beliefs, on our doctrine, there are things, there are acts that we should and should not do. For the Christian, doctrine is the basis of ethics. Doctrine forms our ethics. Our ethics should flow out of our doctrine. What we believe forms what we do. But our ethics, how we act, It impacts not the substance of the faith, but the attractiveness of the faith. See, in giving instructions to bond servants, look with me at verse 10. Scripture says, uh, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, doctrine forms our ethics, but our ethics adorn our doctrine. 
how we live our lives, our character, our honesty, how we conduct ourselves in the home, in the public space, in our workspaces. This is how we adorn. This is how we show the beauty of the gospel. You see, on January 14th, 2012, Deborah could have just strolled down the aisle in some Costco sweatpants and a hoodie, right? I probably would have been just fine. But her wedding dress, it accentuated, it adorned, it illustrated her beauty. This is the same with how we live our lives. And I believe... In our culture, there may be no greater way to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ than by being self-controlled. You see, in this passage, the command to be self-controlled is the only command given to all four groups, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. This is this is applied to all four groups. And in this short letter, Paul mentions self-control seven times. And I submit that our culture lacks self-control in the very same way as the culture on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Ocean 2,000 years ago. See, in our culture, it seems that no one is expected to be self-controlled. Look at me at verse 6. Paul tells Titus to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now today, according to the marketeers, the professors, the politicians, and even young women, it seems that the expectation for young men is to consume alcohol, consume pornography, consume video games, and consume food that ends in itos, right? Cheetos, taquitos, burritos, right? That seems to be the self-control bar that is set for young men today. So, if people who believe the gospel believe the truth that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, pay our penalty, to rise again, and all who put their faith in him could have new life now and in eternity. If all of those people who believe that would exhibit self-control, then we would shine like stars in a crooked and twisted generation, like Philippians 2 says. If followers of Jesus exhibit self-control in the way way we live, where we work, the way we interact, we are going to stick out so much in such a good way to the culture around us. Well, what is self-control? We've talked a lot about self-control. What is this? Well, the word self-control here in Titus, Titus was originally written in Greek. It's the word sophronos. And its verb and, and noun forms show up seven times in this relatively short book. And we see that the English word self-control, we actually find it in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, another letter written by Paul. But the self-control in Galatians 5, 
the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it's a different word than we find in the book of Titus. You see, in, in the, in the self-controlled as, as the fruit of the Spirit is the word enkratea, which has a more uh, spiritual context, meaning the spiritual power over oneself. But the self-control we see in Titus is the word sophronos, and this is a very, very important word in a Greek context, and I believe Paul uses it on purpose. So what does this word sophronos mean? So you'll see a painting on the screen. It's called the School of Athens. It's a 16th century fresco painting by Raphael. And it's supposed to illustrate all the learning that happened in Greek, in the Greek context in the time period before Christ. And you'll see two men in the middle. They're Plato, the older guy, and Aristotle, the younger guy. These are the two most influential thinkers up until, the t up until Christ in the Western world. And, the, and if you take a Philosophy 101 course, this, these guys are probably where you'll start. See, in the Mediterranean wor world, the word sophronos was very significant because it was one of the four cardinal virtues one of the four principal qualities that made someone good, according to Plato and Aristotle. Now, these four virtues are called the cardinal virtues from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge, because Plato and Aristotle claimed that all other virtues hinge on these four virtues, that no one can truly be a good person without the four cardinal virtues. And they are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, sophronos. So this word sophronos, self-control or, or temperance, it's the ability to moderate behavior in order to keep control of oneself. So the fact that Paul used the same word as Plato and Aristotle in a thoroughly Greek context was significant. You see, the cardinal virtues are required in a Greek context to be a good person. So if you have justice, you have fortitude, you have temperance, you have prudence, then you are a good person. But in this letter and elsewhere in Paul's writings, he says that these cardinal virtues, the virtue of self-control, it's not enough to be a good person because our lives are not about being really good people but rather about using our lives to point to the truly great one who is Jesus Christ I mean think about the context uh, the, the concept of self-control in our modern day context you go to someone on the street or someone you work with and you ask them, what, you know, what do you think about self-control? You'll get one of two responses. You, they'll say, self-control is a good thing and uh, I need more of it, <laughs> right? I think that no one argues that self-control is not a good thing. And these are both people who know God and those who don't know God. So when the ancient church fathers and the ancient theologians looked at Plato and Aristotle's discussion of the virtues and Paul's use of the virtues, they asked themselves this. And maybe you've asked yourself this. What's the difference between Christian self-control and non-Christian self-control? 
Right? Maybe you know someone you work with, your neighbor. They don't know Jesus. They don't have any connection with God, but they just seem to be a really good dude, right? She's awesome. Like, she's like, you know, patient. She's wise. She has self-control, like, but she doesn't know Jesus. And maybe you feel a little awkward, like, hey, I know, like, I haven't mowed my lawn in three weeks. My kids are throwing chicken nuggets out the van, but hey, let me tell you about Jesus, right? Maybe you've been there. You just feel like I'm not good enough to go talk to Susie across the street because she's got going on. So what's the difference? Is there a difference between self-control and someone who knows Christ and self-control someone who doesn't know Christ? Well, the ancient fathers and and later the Protestant reformers said this, and I think they are 100% correct. The cardinal virtues... Anyone can acquire these through hard work and through practice. But without God's saving grace through Christ, pursuing virtues like self-control will lead to one of two outcomes. Pride or self-loathing. Pride if you achieve it, self-loathing if you can't. Okay, well, is self-control, is self-control a good thing? Should I pursue self-control? What is, why does Paul tell us to pursue self-control? It's just, if it's the same, if it's just going to lead us to pride or to self-loathing. It's because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us a higher order of virtues, a higher list of virtues. And these higher virtues, called the theological virtues, they actually complete the cardinal virtues. And these virtues are faith, hope, and love. You see, the cardinal virtues, they can be acquired through hard work and determination. But the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, they have to be infused from the outside through God by faith. Faith, hope, and love, they are a gift and they are a grace given by God in salvation. And faith, hope, and love complete justice, temperance, prudence, and fortitude. You see, Aristotle and Plato, they half got it right. They got it right, but for the wrong reasons. Let me illustrate. Back to the original question. What's the difference between self-control and a Christian or non-Christian? It's this. Non-Christian self-control, if it's achieved, the response in a person's life is, I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm amazing. Look what I can do. Look what I've done. Wow, look at me. But if it's not achieved, if you strive for self-control but don't achieve it, non-Christian, ver- non-Christian self-control says, I'm worthless, I'm an embarrassment, I can't do it. Either way, you become prideful or you become self-loathing. And neither of those paths lead to joy. But Christian self-control, if we have achieved it, We say, God, you are doing amazing work in my life. God, you are the source of my strength. God, you are amazing and you've given me this new life as a gift. 
And when we fail as Christians, when we don't exhibit self-control, we say, God, you are so patient with me. Thank you. God, your forgiveness is so strong and so powerful. God, you give me everything I need to grow in this area. There's a man in my life group who has quite the story, story of addiction and of struggle, even from an early age. But he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and every time he tells the story, he talks about God. God, look what you've done in my life. I don't know. It's all God in my life. He is doing a work in my life. And that man, he's got Christian self-control. And it's a joy to hear his story every time. So, how do I get (laughs) self-control? I want self-control, but what do I do? How do I get this self-control? Well, let me play this thought experiment with you. So, um, throughout this week, I've been trying to think about what this looks like in my life. And I'm going to share a story from being at home. Hopefully, Deb, she's watching right now, so hopefully she's okay with this. So, with COVID, it's a challenge to be self-controlled. We have, like, I feel like more time, but self-control is a challenge. I think for us, it comes with uh, screen time, how much screen time we have and the kids have. And I feel also the quality of food we eat and we give to our kids. So we have a 16, uh, 17-month-old Hannah, and we're, Deborah was reading her a little book in her lab. She's just learning words. And it's a little farm book. And she, you know, she's opening the book, and you know, Deborah goes, cow. She kind of goes, cow. You know, and, and then the chickens come up, and Hannah goes, chicken nugget. We're like, oh, man, we're feeding them way too many chicken nuggets, right? It's like it's a struggle. It's a struggle for us. It's a struggle for everybody. So how do we grow in levels of self-control? I want to give you a thought experiment of why possibly God has not given you a greater measure of self-control. So maybe maybe you're praying in your house. Imagine God shows up in a vision and says... Tom, Susan, um, I'm going to give you, you know, you've been praying for self-control. I'm going to give you complete self-control. Here, take this pill, and if you take this pill, you will have perfect self-control. Oh, this is great. You know, I take the pill, and from that moment on, you have perfect self-control. Here's the question. Here's the thought experiment. How would you use your self-control? I'd have six-pack abs. <laughs> my lawn would be perfect. My kids would be perfect. I'd get a promotion. I would um, accomplish these great things. I'd be so cultured. I would be so educated. How would you use your self-control? You see, too often, when we think and we work towards self-control, deep down, I think our desire is for us to look good. I think we want others to think how awesome we are, how attractive we are, how effective we are. We want other people to go, wow, Josh is amazing. Wow, Tom is amazing. Look at him. He's quite the guy. You know what that's doing? It's, It's... It's stealing God's glory. 
Your life is not about you. Your life is not about being a really impressive, attractive, sexy, efficient, effective, wealthy person. Your life is about adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when we try to exhibit self-control so that we look good, the problem is God will never give us that. Isaiah 52, 8 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I will give my glory to no one. But when we begin to use our self-control, not to make us look good, but to make God look good, when we exhibit self-control in what we watch and how we speak and what we do, and other people go, Wow, that's, man, you just really work, you know, you're killing it on the fourth quarter this year. You got the promotion. You can say, look, I've been praying about it in my own life. I just want God to use me to make a, a, a contribution to the company. Or, wow, your kids are like totally obedient. Like they're doing awesome. You know, I've been asking God to help because I feel like I'm a, I don't feel good as a mom and I feel incapable, but I feel like God's working in my life. When we begin to deflect and reflect God's glory to others, that's when we experience enduring joy. Look, people, honestly, don't really care a lot about you. All right? So I I have a counselor I, I go to on occasion. He said this, at 20, you're really concerned about what people think. At 40, you're less concerned about what people think. At 60, you don't care what people think. And at 80, you realize, ain't nobody thinking about you. I think that's true. So how will you use your self-control? What's deep down in there? What's the motivator? Well, here's the time of the message where we like uh, give you uh, what you're supposed to do, four steps, you know, to practice this week. Well, I feel like self-control, it's such a, there's just not a ton of clearly marked out boundaries on what we should and should not do in scripture. There's general principles, but all right, how many movies can I watch this week and not be, and not lack self-control, right? How many donuts can I eat? What kind of words should I say? How much sleep should I get, right? What we need is the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us every step of the way. So I've got, instead of giving you three steps we want you to do this week, I want to give you some homework, okay? Here's your homework. I challenge you to read Matthew 26 through 27 and answer this question. What did self-control look like in Jesus' trial and his crucifixion? So Matthew 26 to 27, that's Jesus' trial before the high priest, before Pilate, before Caiaphas. He was arrested, struck, crucified, accused. How did Jesus respond when he was wrongfully accused, when he was ganged up on, when people said falsehoods against him, when he experienced pain? 
How did he respond? So my challenge for you is read through that. Write some notes. Write some comments. Wow, he did this. He didn't do this. Lord, would you help me be more like Jesus? Would you help me in this area of my life? And if you would, take a picture of it. Post it on social media. Tag us and let us know. It helps us. It encourages us to see that God's word is working in the lives of our people. Well, I want to close with this. I want to pray in three areas. I want to pray um, for our congregation that we would be people of self-control, that we would, like Philippians 2, shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I want to pray for us to have self-control. Secondly, I want to pray for our country. I want to pray that the followers of Christ will magnify God and trust in him in the midst of everything we've got going on in the new season of our country. Third, I want to pray about COVID. I want to pray for the teachers, the nurses, the first responders, all those impacted, and for wisdom for all the leaders um, knowing what to do with this spike going up. So if you could bow your heads, we'll go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that when your son was on the cross, he did not call out a legion of angels to take him off and to punish all those evildoers because that would mean that you would have to punish us the full weight of the punishment we deserve. But Lord, because of your son's self-control, we get salvation and we get the Holy Spirit so that when we do lack self-control, you've already forgiven it. So we thank you for your son, Jesus, and his beauty, his matchless beauty. And Lord, secondly, Lord, I want to pray for our country. Your word says that believers are to have the unity of the spirit with the bond of peace. Lord, even in your word, as we read today in Titus Verse 7, it says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Lord, may we not say stuff that give opponents to the gospel ammunition. Lord, may we be an adornment for you. May our lives beautify the work of the gospel and may we be people of joy knowing that we have a king and a kingdom that will not end and is waiting for us. And Lord, thirdly, Lord, this COVID thing, it impacts us all physically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, I pray for first responders. I pray for nurses and doctors, for teachers, administrators. I can't imagine what it would be like to be a teacher or a high school senior right now. (laughs) Would you give them peace that passes all understanding? Will that guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus? But would you give leaders of institutions, of, of organizations, wisdom in how to respond? Lord, I pray against the virus, would you take it away? <laughs> would you keep those safe, those protected, and keep us in perfect peace, Lord? You say you will keep us in perfect peace, whose minds are stayed on you, for, you, for they trust in you. Lord, in all things, Lord, equip us for every good work for your glory, and I pray in Jesus' name.